Hello and welcome to the Apollo Social Science Podcast. My name is Stephen and I'm part of the Apollo Social Science Group. We're a group of researchers based at Queen Mary University of London who research on the intersection of health and social science. And really the idea behind this podcast is to show why that intersection matters and what sort of insights that it can bring. The way we're going to do this podcast is to speak to different members of our team and perhaps some people outside of it as well and to track how three big ideas have influenced someone's research journey and of how their thinking has developed. And in each episode, you'll be able to find links to those three big ideas, be they papers or books or something else entirely in the show notes. So our first guest on the show today is Duncan, Duncan Reynolds, and I'm very grateful to him for having a go at this. We've never tried this before, um, so we're going to see how this goes. Um, But Duncan has recently joined our group, and I'd like to start, Duncan, by asking you a bit about who you are and what your research journey has been up to this point. Hi, Stephen. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to getting going with this conversation. So, yeah, as you said, I've just joined the Apollo team as a postdoctoral researcher. And the project that I'm currently looking at is looking at how new technologies and specifically AI are made for healthcare settings. But I suppose as kind of part of my journey 10, 12 years ago when I was thinking about going to university. I really didn't think this was where I was going to be or end up. I went and did my undergraduate degree in politics and I thought that that was the world that I was going to end up in. And after finishing my undergrad, I went and for two months I worked for a political party here in the UK. And after two months I realised this is really not the world for me. It, uh, I couldn't see myself staying in it for too long, but I still enjoyed kind of the intricacies of policy and that kind of thing. So it wasn't something I wanted to completely leave behind. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go and do a master's in public policy. So I moved to London for the first time, went to UCL. And during this master's, I did a module in healthcare organisation. And I just found it so incredibly fascinating. I thought, great, I'm going to do my dissertation in how policies influenced healthcare. And I wrote my master's dissertation on the influence of new public management measures by the new Labour government on patient choice in hospitals. And that went well. I was very happy. But I was a little bit dissatisfied at the end. I thought, you know what? I've I've got more to do in research here. There's more stories I want to tell. There's more I want to find out. And I thought, yeah, postdoctoral research, this this could be for me. So I started kind of having a think, having a look around, and I ended up getting accepted to the business school at Queen Mary University to, the project was originally looking at translational research, so how medical innovation goes from bench side to bedside. And the focus of that was going to be me doing ethnographic work in clinical trials in London to understand how research was translated into practice. I decided reasonably early on in this that actually there was something slightly different going on in this research centre that made them quite good. We specifically chose the site because they were very good at what they did. Hmm. And the way they built relationships with participants and kept participants in and made everyone 
very happy and relaxed. You know, these aren't words you traditionally associate with clinical and medical research right. yeah. settings. So I thought, how are they doing this? And I ended up writing my thesis on how trust emerged from the interactions between doctors and participants. And I recently, it would have been three, four months ago now, defended my thesis. And two days after my viva, I got a message from one of my supervisors saying, oh, this has just popped up. I think it would be a really good postdoc for you. And it was the project I am currently working on looking at the creation of AI for healthcare. So I kind of, I suppose everyone takes a slightly odd route to end up yeah. where they are now. And I've gone from kind of politics to policy and healthcare to realizing that what I care about is how innovation happens in healthcare. So I looked at clinical trials and now I'm looking at the creation of AI. And yeah, this is me yeah. today. Okay, excellent. Thank you. And, I, and now the, the kind of, I guess, format of this podcast, what I've asked you to do in advance of this is to reflect on all that journey and to think about three ideas. I think earlier you joked about how this is almost like desert island ideas. I, I like that. <laughs> like, this is like the three ideas that, um, or th let's, let's not say they have to be the very top three, but three of the ideas that have had the biggest impact on your understanding and your development as a researcher. And so um, you selected three, and the first is sitting in front of us. In fact, there's two copies in the room um, at the moment. It's, it's that, that much of a, of a big book. And it's by someone called Davide Nicolini, called Practice Theory, Work and Organization, and Introduction. And even though it says an introduction at the bottom, it looks scary to me. Um, so I understand this is a book that, first of all, filled you with some terror. I'd like you to tell me a bit about this book, your relationship with it, and why you've selected it today as one of your big ideas. Yeah, so this book was first introduced to me pretty early on in my PhD journey when I was having a supervision and having a discussion with my supervisors, as you kind of will do early on, about what kind of methodological approach I will be taking. And one of my supervisors stood up, went to her bookshelf and took what turned out to be this book off her bookshelf, handed it to me, looked at my other supervisor and said, shall we scare him? And I thought, okay, this is interesting. But, you know, I was young, just started a PhD, full of confidence. I thought, yeah, yeah, I'll be fine. I'll, I'll, I'll read this, no problem. And I took it and I read it cover to cover. And I closed the final page and I thought, oh, no, I didn't understand a word of that. <laughs> and this is something that I'm expected to potentially be using if I want to. Yes. And I thought, okay. Right, let's, let's start again. Let's break this down very slowly. And a couple of the big ideas from the book I kind of got originally. And the book is on practice theory. And what Davide does with this book is say that there isn't just one practice theory out there. I'm sure we kind of heard the idea of looking at different practices and practices that happen. But actually there are lots of different practice theories and he kind of traces them philosophically through time and looks at what they all have in common and what they all have in common is kind of an idea that the basic building blocks of society aren't just kind of individual rational actions as maybe being very broad here but maybe a kind of economics perspective mm -hmm. it also isn't these overarching superstructures that you know like capitalism or the patriarchy which right determine everything that happens as maybe 
some sociology uh, views would say, but actually it's something in the middle and it's practices, so sayings and doings of in particular contexts that reinforce, you know, they're performed by individuals in social contexts, but they reinforce the superstructures above. So rather than top down or bottom up, it's kind of a, a middle mutually constituted okay. view. And it took me a long time to get that from this book. And originally this book terrified me. Mm-hmm. But slowly, over time, as I kept coming back to it, and especially as I started doing my field work, some of the ideas that were spoken about in what I saw as quite highbrow philosophical ways that I didn't necessarily understand started to make a bit of sense to me. And one of the ideas that comes up in this book is networks of practices, how they're all meshed and entwined together and We only separate them out for analytical purposes, but in reality, everything is impacted upon each other and it's all entwined together. And I read that and I thought, okay. But then doing my ethnography, doing my fieldwork, I saw that what we might call kind of practices of caring for patients, you know, talking to them about their lives outside of medicine, being nice to them, bringing them teas and coffee, weren't just practices of care, but they were also practices that created a nice atmosphere. They were also practices that influenced how willing participants were to stay on the trials or leave the trials. Mm -hmm. And these things were all entwined together. And slowly these ideas started to make a bit of sense to me. And as I went through my PhD journey, this book changed from being something that terrified me and really made me question, you know, whether I was kind of cut out for this life Hmm. to actually being something that I now go back to quite a lot, especially if I want to reference or write something slightly more methodologically. Hmm. This is now my go-to. So I think for me, you know, I think the ideas are great. They've really influenced me. But the reason I wanted to talk about this first is because of the relationship that I had with it from terrified to I can do this and I think it's kind of it's the story of research I suppose in that way I'm sure we've all gone through that moments of great clarity moments of I can't get out of this and slowly we build our way up and we muddle our way through and this book is my representation of that. Thanks Duncan that's that's great And, and just kind of in terms of that ongoing relationship you have with some of these ideas around practice theory. Um, Could you just give us an example of maybe something more recently where this way of looking at things has influenced um, what you're you're working on now or or something else you've been working on recently? Mm. So what I'm working on at the moment with the AI, creating an AI technology for healthcare, when we create AI, you need to, especially for healthcare, well, for anything, I suppose, but in our context, healthcare, you need the expertise of data scientists, but you also need the expertise of clinicians to come together. Hmm. And the way these two groups operate, the way they kind of understand what knowledge is, what they believe is evidence, can be quite different. So when they come together, the practices that they're used to doing can often clash and lead to... I wouldn't say disagreement, it's not as overt as that, but it's maybe some misunderstanding or some delays. So it's been very interesting seeing how distinct practices from different groups come together and how they kind of start this entwinement 
and then something actually comes out of it and how they get over these disagreements and work their way through it and the kind of evidence they draw on is very much informed by the practices that they are used to enacting. So mm. it's something that I've kind of repeatedly gone back to, this yes. idea of networks and entwinement. I, yes. I, I see it everywhere now. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. And I guess that's, that's the sign of a, an idea that's really taken root in you. It is where mm. it's a lens you can kind of reliably come back to and say, I think this is likely to show me something different about this new thing I'm looking at. No, that's Absolutely. Great. Mm. So it, I'm going to move to your next idea now. So um, second big idea is, um, is a paper um, and it's got an intriguing title, Trust My Doctor, Trust My Pancreas. Um, can you tell me a bit about um, what this paper is about and um, what it's done for you? So this is a paper by Simon Cohn, and it looks at trust as an emergent quality of social practice. I kind of mentioned near the start that my PhD looked at how trusting is emergent from different practices, mm. and this paper was kind of a starting point for me in this and I really feel like I kind of build on this work right. in my thesis and what I like about it is it really very well kind of breaks down and articulates a lot of the kind of assumptions that we might have about trust I think intuitively we kind of know what trust is yes. right but then I, if I kind of asked you to suddenly go Stephen define trust for me mm. you probably could but it wouldn't maybe come naturally yeah and a lot of these things are then broken down by Cohn very nicely saying well actually it's kind of about accepting vulnerability in uncertain environments mm. to be rely in to rely on someone else or an institution and I thought that's quite nice but it goes another level thinking okay trust is generally perceived as something we have Mm. We have trust or we don't have trust. We can build trust, we can destroy trust. And if it's something that we can have, then kind of almost by definition, maybe it's something that we can measure mm. and something that we can say more trust equals more good right. outcomes. Yeah. And this was just something that didn't resonate with me. The mm. way Simon breaks it down, it seems, it, well, it doesn't resonate for him either, but this is how we think about trust, as something more trust equals good. But when we're going about our daily lives and I give my card to the mechanic and I trust that he or she is going to fix it, I'm not making these rational right. calculations about trust. I'm not measuring the amount of trust I have in someone. Mm. And yet we are constantly trusting mm. as we go through our daily lives. So instead, Simon, by looking, by doing an ethnography in a diabetes clinic, mm. looks at how the interactions of doctors and patients within the context of a diabetes clinic really allows trust to emerge mm -hmm. from it. And one of the things that I really, really like about this paper is how he really tells the story of materiality within this. We probably don't think of the importance of objects and materials when we think about trust, mm. but they are so inherently, and I'm going to use that word again, entwined mm. in everything that we do. And the example that I think is really quite beautiful that is kind of used by Simon is he says, a patient went into the doctor's clinic to see a new doctor about their diabetes, and the doctor came out with the patient notes, and they were three or four pages of notes thick. 
And the patient thought, I've had diabetes for years, I've had multiple problems, I've seen lots of doctors, my note should be at least five times that thick. <laughs> yeah. I don't trust that you have all the information yes. you need about me. And that set the tone for the rest of the interaction, this kind of mm. drawing on this materiality. And what I like about that example is that I suppose in a way the thickness of the notes doesn't matter because you could have an iPad, which is as thick as five pieces of paper, which would have all the information about everyone in the world on it. Mm. So it isn't the thickness which makes sense. It's what is, what is there. But I found it very interesting that this, in the context of used to see, this patient being used to seeing a thick pile of notes, a thin pile of notes, really impacted on everything else that happened. Yes. And maybe trust didn't emerge from the rest of the interaction in ways that the doctor might have wanted them to. Yeah, wow. And so that then was something you started seeing in the sort of clinical trials work that you were doing? Absolutely. And maybe I was influenced because, you know, Simon uses the very nice example of, of patient notes. Mm. And in the clinical trials that I saw, I suddenly started thinking and really focusing on kind of the patient notes and how they're used in different practices. Yes. And the patient notes were for these clinical trials would have all of the things you would normally expect to be in there. The trial protocol with the order of when to take blood, when to give food, when to tap them on the knee, all the mm. things that you'd need to do for the clinical trial. It had all the results from all of these tests, but also it contained the patient's story. Because when the doctors and nurses were talking to the participants on the trial, yeah, of course they were writing down the results of the tests, etc. But they were also talking to them as people and getting mm. to know them and saying, oh, you're on holiday to Cornwall next week. Lovely. And in two weeks' time, when that patient came back, the first thing they would do is the doctor or nurse would check the patient notes, see that they wrote down holiday to Cornwall, yes. ask about it, and they would ask about it. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, and this helped create a nice, relaxed, friendly atmosphere because the patient's kind of repeatedly said, oh, I don't feel like a test tube. I don't feel like a guinea pig. Right. Because yes. they're being spoken about, because all of this information is stored mm. in the patient notes. Mm -hmm. And that was contrasted really nicely with when patient notes weren't available. The interaction that participants had with the doctors and nurses was maybe a little bit more stilted, a little yeah. bit more formal procedural yes from what the doctors and nurses could remember mm. rather than actually having this nice story that was contained within the notes mm. and this importance of materiality in practice and trusting practices especially it became really important for me and i was really influenced by my reading of this paper mm. that's brilliant so you, you've told us about two ideas that i guess formed the kind of start and maybe somewhere into the middle of your PhD. And I know the third idea you've chosen is a bit more hot off the press, um, something published just within the last year. Um, it's called De-Troubling Transparency AI for Clinical Applications. So can you tell me a bit about um, what this paper says and the idea that's the kind of juice in this for, for you? So yeah, as I said, my current project that I'm working on, I'm kind of doing the social science side, looking at the processes of how an AI technology is being made for 
healthcare. And this paper starts by talking about AI and healthcare from kind of the two dominant perspectives that we can see, especially in the science and technology studies literature of AI has the potential to revolutionize healthcare by being more accurate, less biased, much faster than doctors can or medical professionals can be the very positive side of AI in healthcare. But then also we have the slightly more critical side of AI in healthcare saying, well, actually, maybe these algorithms aren't more, sorry, less biased than people because they are coded by people and therefore the biases are going to be coded into them. They are trained on data sets that we know are disproportionately white and disproportionately male. Mm -hmm. So therefore these biases might be built into them. And this paper starts kind of summarising this debate quite nicely. But it then goes down the route of saying, despite this, lots of government money is going into it. So clearly there is some view that this is the future. Mm. But even the ones that exist at the moment aren't very well taken up by clinicians. Mm-hmm. There is, clinicians don't seem to trust the results of AI. Why is that? And the idea is because these systems are very opaque, they call them kind of black boxes, and we can't look inside the black box to see how the decision is made. So this paper does a load of interviews with doctors and data scientists looking at how can we get over that? How can we bring these two groups together in order to de-trouble the transparency, as the title Mm, suggests, so that clinicians might use these AI systems more. And, I mean, from my point of view of the project I'm on, it's an absolute goldmine for fantastic places to start. Because, you know, looking at how to bring doctors and um, data scientists together to create AI, brilliant, that's what I'm looking at. This is a really great starting point for me. But what I... What sticks to me about this paper are some of the things that it doesn't say it says a huge amount of fantastic stuff it is a brilliant paper but it talks about bringing doctors and data scientists together so that clinicians can trust the ai well clinicians aren't the only people involved in medical decisions Mm. patients are quite important in medical (laughs) decision making so where do patients come in when we're doing this how can we these are questions that i'm thinking about moving forward How can patients be involved in the creation of AI? Because it would be, on the face of it, very difficult for lay people to have an influence on creating AI because the vast majority of people don't understand data science, (laughs) me included. Mm. So how do we get the patient voice to come into this? Something that I think is not necessarily spoken about here, but something that I would like to look at moving forward because I think it's a really interesting area. It also talks very nicely, this paper, about bringing together doctors and uh, data scientists. But how do we do this in practice? And something that I spoke about a few minutes ago, when I said, these two groups see knowledge very differently, their Mm. understanding of the world is very different. So how do we integrate their knowledges together in a way that creates a coherent piece of technology to use going forward so I think this paper is 
absolutely fantastic kind of bedrock that I think, I hope, some of my current research will build on yes. going forward. So I guess this is almost, whereas the, yeah, the other two feel like they've been a lot more of a springboard for you, this is almost something for you to kind of push back against a little bit mm. and, and, and recognise some of your ideas in contrast to what's, to what's mm. kind of missing and what's silent there. That's, that's fascinating. So, Duncan, thank you. I, I'm really grateful for you sharing these three ideas. And as I mentioned at the start, we'll share um, links to the book and the two papers in the show notes. Um, to finish, I'd just like to ask you, you know, we've heard a bit about your trajectory so far and the ideas that have influenced you. What are some of the things you hope to look at or to do um, in the coming years? So I'm at the very start of my postdoc at the moment. I've got a couple more years or so here. So I'm really excited to see where this goes. But kind of generally, research that I'm interested in is looking at innovation in healthcare and where we can go with this. It, it took kind of the, from man first using tools to man mastering fire, took two million years. <laughs> well, from the invention of the smartphone 20 years ago, we now have chat GPT being used to potentially change the way right. that writing and everything happens. So the speed of innovation has never been faster than it is now. So to kind of understand how this happens, how this comes together, and hopefully how it can come together in a way that's beneficial, not mm. just innovation for the sake of innovation, but something that has a benefit to populations, to allow for healthier populations to live happier and better lives. Understanding this is what really motivates me and what I would like to be involved in researching moving mm. forward. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for your time today, Duncan, and the preparation you've done for this. Um, it's been really interesting to hear about these ideas, not ideas I'm familiar with, and I've learned a lot here. Um, I hope that you as listeners have enjoyed this, and please do um, look up the Apollo Social Science website where you'll find our blog and you're very welcome to put any comments um, or responses to this episode on there please do subscribe to this podcast and do check in with us again soon where we hope to bring you another brave member of our group to talk about three ideas that have been particularly important for them thanks for listening <laughs>